0: One Man's Musings and the Works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the Bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and, uh, well, I guess the first thing I should say is, um, for the second time in less than three weeks I'm recording an episode, less than that two weeks I'm recording another episode. So, um, you know, after my previous episode I, I had said that I, I don't know when you should expect me next. Um, I certainly didn't think it was going to be for this because today I will be reviewing uh, this very timely review of 1991's uh, adaptation uh, Sometimes They Come Back. Now, on, uh, on IFC, I believe, on Father's Day, they had a Stephen King marathon. Um, so that, that kind of made me just do a search or maybe I was just kind of um, uh, just scrolling through the TVs and I, I, I saw that sometimes... Uh, they come back, uh, was going to be on, so I decided to just record it, um, and I figured I would get around to it uh, when I could, and so, hey, you know, I managed to, to get a review out, and, and so here, here we go with, with this episode, I'll be talking about the Tim Matheson and Brooke Adams classic. Um, I don't know if you want to use that word, but I'll definitely get into that in a little bit, uh, but first there's some stuff that I want to talk about, I want to shamelessly plug some of my own writing. You know, longtime listeners will know that I've been fortunate enough to um, have some of my own works published, and if you are um a listener of the stephen king cast and want to see how i do in the realm of horror well you have some options here you can head on over to amazon and and purchase a copy of dark moon digest issue number 22 in order to read my short story room 207 uh, which is a fun tale of a wayward passenger who happens to stay at the the wrong motel um also talking about staying in in, in the wrong motel, uh, you might want to read "This World Will Eat You All the Way Up" um, from Nine Tales Told in the Dark, Issue Number Nine. Uh, this tells the story of two. Hey, lady, you're making your podcast debut. Uh, so, this world will eat you all the way up. Um, uh, tells the, the 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 tale of uh, two longtime friends who go on a cross country road trip post college um, and the unspoken secrets that are rising up to to, to eat them both uh, you can find my short story Hopscotch in the Wax and Wayne publication Wax and Wayne A Gathering of Witch Tales and this is the story of a 13 year old girl who uh, picks the wrong fight uh, this August, you will see the release of the publication "Forget Me Not." I'm sorry, "Trysts of Fate." The "Trysts of Fate" magazine. Um, magazine. My short story is "Forget Me Not," and it's all about relationships and what happens when you um, are in a long-term relationship, and and when you sort of you, you form an identity with someone else, and what happens when you, you you split apart. What happens to your identity? It's an existential sort of. Um, really dreamlike story and then lastly um my short story the portrait um has been picked up for publication uh, so keep your eyes open for the portrait from skeptics must die anthology all right so uh if if you have finished reading some stephen king and want to read um my own stuff you can head on to any of those um uh, publications and uh, enjoy uh, not just my short stories, but the short stories of all the other authors that are trying to cut their teeth out there. All right up next, I just want to read some listener emails because I think that you guys know that I love getting listener emails. So up first, we have our old friend Strass Monkey who writes, "Hiel, hey constant reader, it's been a while since I've written in. Time is a face on the water." Uh, just finishing up *The Tommyknockers* for the fourth or fifth time, but this time I read it after having listened to your discussions of theme and character. So I started reading it with the clear intention, reading it for literary content instead of goosebumps. Sorry, my experiment failed. I found the literary merit so completely secondary to the roller coaster acceleration in this novel that I just held on for the ride. What was a success was that I only reread the novel again because of your podcast. This has been happening constantly because of your podcast. You managed to reignite that spark that was the reason I started reading King in the first place. Your glory in the story, sorry, you glory in the story and your discussion showed me a way to recapture that feeling. So, when I read the Tommyknockers this time, I found myself saying I'd completely forgotten what a good book this is. Thank you. I have friends in England that, whenever we visit their country, always say that they fall in love with their home all over again because they find themselves looking at it through my eyes, which are not seeing the same old, same old, but discovering a new place and seeing details that they have long since relegated to the commonplace and normal surroundings. It's one of the big things you've managed to do with your podcast. Seeing King's work through your eyes has motivated a lot of people to re-examine their feelings about this book or that book. I know that it's done that for me. As I've said before, and others have too, I've heard their emails, that regardless of your opinions and whether or not I agree with them, you always provide food for thought. I guess I just had to write back in to say the same things I always say. You've done and continue to do so a superb job. I think that Mr. King himself would be flattered and pleased at the amount of skull sweat I've never heard that before like that. You've poured into this project. It doesn't surprise me at all that you're a published author. Haven't gotten your stories yet, but rest assured I will. So thanks for doing what you do. Your podcast is terrific, and I hope you don't ever run out of ideas for more episodes. As for making up a new quartet of gunslingers, how about this? Alan Payneborn, sorry, Alan Pangborn Din. Henry Layton from Black House. Seriously, wouldn't it be cool to have a blind gunslinger who was just as formidable as a sighted one? I completely agree. Mark Petrie, Jim Gardner, Raider the dog from Needful Things. I was trying to use King's template, but you're right. It's harder to do than you think it would be. Haven't got a psychic squad for you yet. Oh, uh... Let's see. Um... Okay, and then, um, so yeah, Strauss Monkey, thank you for always writing in. I really, really appreciate it. Um and uh yeah guys i just I, I just i love the emails keep them coming up next we have lauren who writes dear stephen Kingcast, just listen to your takes on the top 10 dark tower moments and i have to say right on i thought that i'd add my own dark tower moments they're small moments but it definitely made an impact nonetheless and hey guys spoiler alert for dark tower stuff coming up right now and speaking of dark tower i will be getting to all the dark tower movie news that hit the uh the, the interweb uh over the weekend um Those of you who follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook will see that I was posting um, all over 4th of July weekend on all of the set photos. So I'm going to be talking about that in a little bit. I should have said that at the top of the episode, but I will be talking about that in a little bit. But first, please uh, note that there will be spoilers for big events and small events within the Dark Tower um, series during this particular email thread. So, Roland's conversation with the man in black and the gunslinger. I admit it was a bit weird because I almost did expect a shootout. And it was just sort of the strangest camping trip I've ever read. That being said, it's also an incredibly awesome scene. The dialogue in that scene is amazing. And it shows how charismatic and scary Walter can be. His speech about the tower and just how massive it is is definitely one of the best speeches in the series because it really does capture the sheer scope of that thing. And his showing the visions to Roland. It's pretty scary, but an awesome moment. I also liked his interactions with Roland. He can be sarcastic, rubbing what Roland did to jake in his face uh, but also affable he's very polite around roland which i think makes him creepier he and roland definitely have an interesting dynamic and it's a pity that it wasn't explored further in the series speaking of walter there's a brief bit in wolves of the Kala where has a very unusual response to callahan accusing him of being cruel which is not unwarranted it's actually being gen he's actually being genuinely wounded by this and his eyes actually widening, and him looking hurt, then saying this, which I find interesting. I am what Ka and the King and the Tower have made me. We all are. We're caught. It's a line that I've always been curious about, and why Walter has that reaction, because he would be the last person to justify himself but it's definitely one of those moments I've found that actually kind of humanizes flag in a weird way. More on that later. I'm starting to wonder, and this is a crazy theory, but I am wondering if on a subconscious level Walter is aware of the time loop going on in Midworld. Some of the same events playing out again and again. Or if it's just plain bitterness over his lot in life and how he exactly got there. In general, the scene between him and Callahan is very well done, and how he plays off Callahan is amazing. I'm actually hoping, even if it might be impossible, that we get to see more of Walter in the Dark Tower movie coming out next year and its sequels because he just plays incredibly well off people, whether it be Roland or Callahan. And Lauren, um, I think that if this is a hit um, and there are sequels, you're going to get a lot of this character. Um, he is not just a... From what I can gather, he's not just a, a fleeting man in black who like he in the stories like he he casts a very large shadow but he's not in it that much um but we're gonna see a lot of matthew mcconaughey you don't cast matthew mcconaughey for a small role nowadays so it really is um the dark tower starring Idris elba and matthew mcconaughey that's how i see it so she continues walter recruiting the tiktok man it's a very chilling scene and illustrates how good Walter is at winning people over. And I will admit, hearing Walter mention trash Can Man made me ridiculously happy. It's interesting, again, how Walter calls the trash can man a dear friend of his because I have doubts about his sincerity, but Flag actually does express sorrow in the stand for the trash can man gone missing, even asking Lloyd to give him a quick, painless death and saying that he felt a certain kinship with trash can. It's one of those things about Flag I like. King could have done in the easy route and made him a one-dimensional madman, but does give him moments of vulnerability like the way station scene, moments of softness like in the stand. Granted... Flag ruins it a bit by reminding us that basically Trash Can Man is still a tool for him, but it's still interesting. He probably has the ability to feel compassion, but it's a small thing that he's buried very deep, and moments of pity, such as the revelation of his backstory in the final Dark Tower book, before Mordred eats him, of course. Another thing I observed is that even when Flag shows compassion, it's also cloaked in manipulation, not only with Trash Can Man, but with Thomas and Eyes of the Dragon. There's one bit in there where the narrator basically says in his own way he did love Thomas, but it was twisted by manipulation. It's on page 184, at least in my iBooks app. And he claims to have loved or at least coveted Gabriel in the final book of The Dark Tower, though I'm wondering how much of this is true. So it's interesting, I think, that in a way, Walter is capable of gentler feelings, but even those are twisted by how far he can use a person. Gabriel, Thomas, and Trash Can Man seem to be the only instances where it's popped up. Just makes Walter a more complex, creepy character than he already is. But back on topic Walter coming into the picture and recruiting the TikTok man was a chillingly awesome moment. And the thing is, the moment he mentions the trash can man and My Life for You, it pretty much solidifies that this is the same guy from the stand, and it is awesome. I already knew ahead of time, but it was still a great moment. Walter's death, though mostly for the moments preceding it, that really do shine more light on this character. It's stuff like, what has the universe ever done for me, for instance? And I'm wondering if, in a way, Walter has some anger inside of him as well. Sort of like he feels Ka somehow screwed him over. It seems to be another kingism, the character who has a rage against God or Ka moment, whether they be hero or villain. And there could definitely be a component of bitterness in what he does, along with the usual doing what he does for the sake of it. It's just another similarity he and Linoj have, just a deep-seated fury and hatred for people concealed beneath their humor and affability. I confess that reading that part, I did actually feel genuinely sad for Walter, especially in light of what King reveals about him later. It's a small moment from The Wastelands, but Roland explaining the origin of certain constellations to Eddie and Susanna. It's a nice bit of world-building for Midworld, and it has some pretty cute and funny bits in there. As someone who has a mythology fan in elementary school, Greek to be more precise, I appreciate it. The cliffhanger for The Wastelands. Yeah, quite a few Wasteland moments, but in my opinion, this is really where the series starts getting amazing. I admit it was such a tense, shocking moment that I was thinking, oh my god, how are they going to get out of this? I've got to read the next book. And then got impressed by Eddie managing to outwit Blaine with the jokes. Yeah, Eddie, that was awesome. But I definitely won't forget that feeling of tension and dread after I finished The Wastelands. Dandelo, That was just an incredibly creepy moment creative concept and overall just very well executed callahan coming back into the picture not gonna lie when i first finished salem's lot i did feel strangely unfulfilled with the ending as gray as the rest of the book was and that included what happened to callahan but seeing him return in wolves of the collar was a delight and hearing his story as to how he got to midworld is pretty miraculous so those are my top dark tower moments i might find more when i get around to rereading the series but these are the ones that really stand out Sincerely, Lauren. Lauren, great insight, great moments, and everybody else, feel free to, to share um, your thoughts on, on what your favorite Dark Tower moments were. Up next, we have Kurt, um, who writes, I hope you got my last note and that you're getting to this one. Um, that's my bow to the totally obvious. I was going to tell you something about eleven twenty two sixty three on Hulu, and then I was going to comment on the Under the Dome, which I've actually read twice. And I think I said before, when 63 first came out, and I think I read it on Audible, I got through it in about two days. Um, I'm blind 63 now. I've been doing this since I was in high school copying textbooks for my classes. I tried to go back and reread it when I know that 63 was coming out on Hulu, but found it rather slow going. I finally did finish it and listened to your reaction podcast and found that I really didn't have to watch the shows since they weren't described. And if I knew what happened, I could listen to them if I wanted to but I didn't really have to. I tried to listen to special parts to see how they compared but I found that mostly it just wasn't worth my time. Under the Dome was a similar situation. I was green with jealousy whatever that is when I heard about the sighted people that got to watch Under the Dome. Well the first season was not described. I was originally told that the rest wasn't described either but then I found out that the second and third seasons had been described for the British people. Well I didn't happen to run in into a place where I could get caught up until um, the third season beginning. From there, I found out the show was such a mess that I wouldn't even get that much out of them because by then, and I guess for a long time before that, the series had been a patchwork quilt of crap, and if I had known how really bad it was, I needn't have bothered. I felt really bad for Stephen King since he slogged into this mess and just couldn't pull himself out. I think Hulu did a good job, and hopefully he made a lot of money since he had to sell it to a country by country and places for the commercials for each country. I would have really liked for it to have been described, but since I will always read the books first, I will probably never be surprised, as I was when my wife and I went to see The Shining. As for The Dark Tower, I really hope they do describe it right off since I would like to see that from the beginning, and it's going to have a beginning far different than The Gunslinger, since they will never keep the audience with that one. I think if they went to start at a suspenseful place, they should start with the f- first with the Lobstrosities. I mean, right off the first thing that you see with all of that entails. Where to go from there, I don't know. But there's nothing to keep the audience like watching someone's fingers being chewed off. Do I need to point out that I'm not going to see whatever is placed? But as a totally outside observer by audio with no fingers in the game, that's how I would do it. Based on my feelings about these last two TV series, I really have to rethink my feelings about King movies, but I cannot argue with the power of the Green Mile and Shawshank. Well, I think that's about it. I hope it's a somewhat different and interesting view and will at least make you think. Thanks again, Kurt. Kurt, that's absolutely a different and interesting view. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think that your perspective is is very very important because you're giving us a, a look at things that most of us don't the the, the way in which that most of us don't don't um, experience um, Stephen King um, or just life in general. So uh, you know, if there's anything that you need from me, uh, certainly let me know um, and and continue uh, writing in because yours yours is a voice that I definitely want to hear more of. All right, everyone. So like I said. Um, I want to talk about the the dark tower news that's been popping up so for those of you who are unaware uh the dark tower movie is coming now i want to say that the dark tower movie is coming not the gunslinger uh now i have spoken about this at length before on the podcast when the news broke so anyone that is expecting a straight-up adaptation of the gunslinger i mean that's not what we're going to get and i mean honestly that's not what we should get because if you think about it i mean first of all i mean the gunslinger was written when King was just a, a kid in college, I mean, he didn't know that this this was going to be the beginning of a series that was going to stretch for decades. He was going to um, get married, have children, uh, become a, a best-selling author that was not just a, a pop cultural icon, but just a cultural icon who didn't just entertain millions worldwide, but shaped the next generations of storytellers, um... Someone that would become uh, addicted uh, to substance abuse and would successfully beat that back and become sober, would die, he would die by a car crash, and which is what, his, his hip was twisted the wrong way among other injuries, and come back from that and not miss a beat in terms of publishing. Someone that would publish you know, one to two books at the very least a year. So I mean, this is, he, he can't, you can't imagine that when you sit down to write that first book. And that first book, I think that we'll all agree doesn't really fit with the rest of the, the the books. It feels like a weird precursor, like a prologue or a prototype as to what the, the Dark Tower series would be. As much as I like the Gunslinger, it's very well done. But it just it doesn't fit the rest. So for me, the fact that they're tooling the, sto- the story around, it it makes sense for me um, for a number of reasons. One, in my last episode I talked about the inclusion of the Horn of Eld which if we see Idris Elba walking around with the Horn of Eld, as the, the, the tweet that King had, um, had tweeted out, uh, shows that the timeline is different and this is a continuation of the cycle. So things are gonna be different. And in a, in a series where reality is bleeding um, together and even at one point Roland says that his own past is changing day by day, no, everything is in flux nothing remains constant so if we see sweeping changes in an adaptation that doesn't that really only fit with what the dark tower series is and if there are sweeping changes doesn't that only show how faithful these movies really are um to go, to give a scene-by-scene adaptation it to me it would be a um that would that would be an unfaithful adaptation so, I mean, we have some adaptations out there. Um, you know, I mean, I think a lot about Game of Thrones, and this is the, the one, one of the only book series or that or, or series out there that is based on a existing property, whether it be a comic book or whether it be a book that, you know, I, I haven't read beforehand. Um, I have purposefully stayed away from it just because I love my Sunday nights watching Game of Thrones. Um, I love the revelations that come um, as a television viewer, Um and I like just not knowing what's next. I mean, every you know, whether it's The Walking Dead or Preacher or, or The Dark Tower or the Marvel movies or, or, or what have you, I you know I, I have the information from the source material, and I'm, part of my brain is always comparing against um, what I'm seeing with what I know. Uh, so it's good to just have the the Game of Thrones. However, with Game of Thrones, what I'm trying to say is, for all intents and purposes, from what I understand, not being a book reader, is that you know it, it's pretty pretty faithful um, you know I, I from what I understand you know timelines have been shifted here and there characters have been um, multiple characters have been collapsed into one character um, and, but uh, really it just it seems like the the fat has been trimmed it's been streamlined uh, the minutia has been cut out the the little details that fans love mm. has been jettisoned in order for a more you know linear and straightforward story and totally makes sense I get it but I mean I that looks you know the the Game of Thrones, is more of a straightforward adaptation um and then like recently there's there's preacher preacher is now on amc and um in in some ways on a surface level it's pretty it's pretty uh faithful in some ways i mean the casting i think is 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 great there's a tone that i i think gets to the heart of what preacher is that over the top um bold comedy Uh, But I I, I feel that by sticking it in the town of Anvil, uh, you're kind of missing out on what the the real point of what Preacher is, which is a propulsive, proactive show about a preacher literally going in search of God, and it becomes a a road trip across America with a... um, you know, uh, someone from overseas being able to, to give a statement on America by having his characters go across the country. And, like I said, it's, it's propulsive, it's explosive, it's it's very proactive, and the show is not. It's very reactive, and it's 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 passive because everything is coming to this town. Now, I mean, word on the street is that that might change, and that's fine. I'm fine. If, if season one kind of had to be a proof of concept that launches... Season two and any subsequent seasons into the story and and the the mold that we know, but so I would say that on a service level, Preacher kind of looks like the comic books, but from a, a fundamental aspect, they've changed aspects um, that I think should not be changed. So I'm having a harder time with um, with Preacher. When it comes to the Dark Tower, I've been thinking more and more about Brian Fuller's Hannibal. Now, what Brian Fuller had done. Is he took basic concepts of of what we know about Hannibal Lecter and the events and the characters of of those books, um, and the movies, but he, he did his own thing. But it never wasn't. Uh, faithful to what Thomas Harris had done, and and he made some pretty significant changes. I mean, with with the the Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter relationship, he took what had been in the books, um, what was just your your very basic typical um, FBI profiler genius mind hunting down um, the 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 psychopathic killer. And this is something that's just now a, an overused trope. I mean, at the time, I understand that it was it was something different. It wasn't. Um, totally original um but i mean it's still it wasn't as pervasive as it is today so you know rather than you know these two characters being you know the the two sides of the same coin and one's good and one's evil like he he jettisoned that i mean he included it a little bit but basically he turned that and, he, and then he took it and he turned and uh, wind up turning it into uh it's the love story between these two characters i mean so will graham isn't just a guy going after you know hannibal lecter i mean they, they're these two just can't live without each other um, and it's played, you know, totally earnestly. And it works. I mean, he, he changed characters' genders. He changed characters' races. And, I, I, and he changed the, the, the timeline and events of, of the books and the chronology of Hannibal Lecter to fit the needs of the medium in which he was working and to keep things fresh and to keep his own spin on it. And um, so even though there were pretty, pretty significant changes, at no point did, did it never not feel faithful because it was being done by a fan, and it was being done by someone that, that knew the, 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 the mythology of the Hannibal Lecter series inside and out. And so, um, even though things played out in a, in a different way, that it still had the, the roots in, um, in fandom and faithfulness. And that's kind of the impression that I'm getting out of the Dark Tower movie. So I'm fine. I, I've said this before. I'm fine with changes. I just wanna. I just wanna see how it plays out. Now, when it comes out, and it, if it sucks, because um, it's just not a well-done movie, I'll, I'll, I'll um, you know, take it to bat. But it, I'm not gonna judge it for being different, just for the sake of being different. I, 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 I want to see how it turns out. I want to see how it's done, based on what the, the creative forces behind it, how well they. They accomplished what they set out to do. With all of that said, um, there was filming in New York uh, this past week. And so there were um, a lot of just photos taken from uh, passers-by. And the first photos that were taken were of the man in black. Okay, So this was it. This is where we start to get an image of what Matthew McConaughey was going to look like. And I don't think that This is what we expected, which doesn't mean that's bad. Again, now it kind of takes us a moment to just acclimate ourselves. Um, And then for me personally, it took me a moment and I said, I get it. And I like it a lot. So I think that for most of us um, when we think of Randall Flagg, uh, I, I think that the, the Jamie Sheridan um, vision of, of Randall Flagg kind of has permeated what we think of that aspect of the character, you know, doing the, the Canadian tuxedo. Now we've seen that so we don't need to see that again. And then we have, you know, the, the man in black um, as he's been depicted in, in a lot of illustrations and he's just this cloaked figure in robes, right? So we don't what Matthew McConaughey is, It's 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 neither of those and yet it's it, 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 you can see how it, there's roots there in each of them so basically the thing is he, he's dressed all in black so it's very literally his black hair um, and he's wearing like a long a long jacket that uh, just, just I don't know how to describe it but just a, a long jacket that, that kind of gives him almost like a cape look um, and he has a a black shirt um, kind of unbuttoned to the chest which to me speaks to the, the Martin aspect of his character who was very passionate i mean he was in love with Gabrielle um and i think that when we first see him in the flashback of the gunslinger you know his shirt is unbuttoned that's a nice callback um he's got a black vest uh and he's got like long fingernails so we definitely know that he's evil but the 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 style of the outfit that he's wearing and he's walking through new york city which i can't wait to see i you know is he gonna try and kill jake here we we don't know i'll get to that in a second because there was someone else that was spotted on set uh but you know he's walking around new york city so there's a lot of questions like what's he doing in new york you know because there's other characters in new york at that time um based on the set photos and uh so it's just really really cool and so he looks like you know if you saw him in new york city like you. He's not going to stand out. You don't have a wizard dressed in cloaks running by you. Like, he's he's dressed. He's got a... Like I said, he's got a jacket. He's got a vest. He He looks... You know he's he's dressing like us, but he doesn't look like us because the outfit itself, it, it somehow looks otherworldly. And knowing that he's a sorcerer, you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, that guy's a wizard. Looking at the outfit just the way that they've done it, they somehow make it look contemporary, yet alien at the same time. Bravo. Bravo to the costume designer because I, I think that it's a very interesting and fun look for this character. Um, and McConaughey, like, you know, he seems to be having a ball in the pictures that were taken, but... Uh, totally down with that look totally down i can't wait to see more and i can't wait to see the official um the official look at this character i'm sure that ew will have first uh first go around with that because they were the ones that broke the story they seem to be covering this very very well okay so the next day and the day after there were photos of Mm -hmm. jake uh jake chambers so tom taylor is the actor they've aged him up to about 14 years old um he just looks like a kid from nowadays um so it's not set in in the 70s i know that's gonna upset some purists out there but my argument is this um when king sat down to write jake chambers and the story of jake chambers he wasn't setting it in the past he was setting it in his present so for them to to make this movie now to me it makes sense okay yeah i mean let's set it in the present it 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 matters less to me to to have him be in in 1977 as the the relationship between him and the other characters makes sense he just needs to be a kid from one world going into another world um so jake just looks like a kid and he's walking and there's a there's a photo of him walking talking on the cell phone and there's another photo of him on the cell phone encountering roland on the streets of new york city okay i'll talk about roland so um God, guys, Idris Elba looks great. I know that some of you vehemently disagree with that, and I vehemently disagree with your disagreement. Um, And I'm sorry, I just got to be on the record for that. I think that he looks great. Um, I mean, so he's not exactly what I would picture when I had pictured the Gunslinger, but if I didn't know that he wasn't in it and I just saw a still of how he was dressed, the first thing I would think of is Gunslinger. All right, He has a long jacket. Um, like a duster, is that what they call him? He's got a long jacket. He has, uh, he's got a red scarf, a white shirt. He has a uh, almost like a military-looking vest on underneath, and just big-ass guns holstered to his side. He's got the cowboy boots and uh, like gray. So he's dressed in a lot of gray. Uh, so I mean, he doesn't have the he doesn't have jeans on, um, but I don't think that he has to. To me, this looks. Well, someone online said something along the lines of um, that it's a bit over costumey. It's a good look, but it's over overly costumey. But to me, I I like the idea of him not looking like a cowboy because he's not a cowboy. And I think that a lot of us kind of pictured Roland as just uh, you know a cowboy with an extra set of skills. This to me makes him look one step away from that. You know, more important than that. He looks. Dangerous. He looks, it's almost like a uniform, and I don't mind gunslingers having a sort of uniform to them. Um, You know, I mean, the Jedi Knights had a very distinct appearance. They wore the robes. Knights of the Round Table, they had their armor, so I don't mind if this is a kind of a military looking, and I say the word military, if you haven't seen it and you look at it, you might not think military, but there's something about it that looks like a uniform. Um, And I like that both he and Walter have these long jackets to kind of give you the, the 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 sensation of a cape without them actually wearing capes because then then it kind of gets into good versus evil and, and so i just i really like the look and he just has this look on his face that to me is so rolling he's walking around the streets in new york i don't know if it's if he's in character or if it's just like a hot day and he just Elba is just like really hot but he just looks so grumpy so i just love the idea of rolling walking around just not wanting to be there He's got a, a, a pack sack um, on his back. But there is a scene, man, that was, there was, oh God, there was a photo that was taken where he's walking and he, he and Jake are, are, are staring at each other. And there is a shot that is taken of Roland and Jake hugging. Now let's talk about that for a second. Now here's the, the issue with mythologizing set photos and, 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 and this and that because it, I have issues with this when when other people do it, so I'm falling into the trap of doing it myself. Is that it kind of sets up unrealistic expectations for the movie because you start to, um, you know, project your own wants and wishes and and uh, predictions onto these images that are free of context. So I don't know what this means. I mean, this couldn't this might not even have been Jake and Roland hugging. It could have just been Idris Elba and Tom Taylor hugging after the shoot was over. Like for all I know. Um, but if it is Jake and Roland hugging on the streets of New York City, and King had tweeted out an image of the, the the Horn of Eld, what if Roland knows? Guys, like, what if this is a story in which our character knows of the the on some level the, the previous incarnations of himself, and he knows the boy. What if this isn't them meeting for the first time? What if this is a, them reuniting? Like, how awesome would that be? Um, maybe he's there to stop Jake. From getting run over by the car, maybe he's there to stop the man in black from doing that. Like, I'm fine with variations um, to the story, especially if the variations uh, play against our uh, expectations um, based on what had occurred in the works themselves. So, I, I this was just very, very surreal, very exciting for me. Um, Scott Wampler from Birth, Movies, Death. Um, he, he started really tweeting out the images. He he wrote a great piece on, on birth movies death, and uh, he's uh, he said that he was going to be writing um, kind of a follow up later in this week. So I would uh, just in general I would hover around that site. They they do a lot of a lot of good work over there. Um, I get a lot of my info from from them, and uh, I mean if you want uh, Scott Wampler's thoughts, I would I would check out uh, that site. Okay, so I'll definitely talk more about the Dark Tower in um, upcoming months, upcoming episodes. um, Whenever there's significant Dark Tower news, I will be there to cover it. Um, So what we're going to do next, we're going to get to what you've been waiting for, the long-awaited, not really, uh, review of Sometimes They Come Back. So first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary. Jim Norton, 36, a high school history teacher, moves back to his old hometown after accepting a teaching job there. He moved from the town after he witnessed his brother, Wayne, murdered by a gang of greasers in 1963. The murderers themselves were killed shortly afterwards by an oncoming train having parked on the tracks. Jim has nightmares about his brother's murder as he starts teaching in the town. Students that are close to him start to be involved in various accidents that look like suicides. One by one, the students are slain so the greasers, disguised as living teens, can return to class. The Greasers plan to kill Jim the same way they murdered Wayne to keep themselves out of hell. They intend to have a child witness the event, leading them to try and kidnap Jim's son Scott. Jim finds out that there is a way to let his own brother return. The gang also needs the remaining living member of their gang, Carl Mueller, who left before the train struck. Jim finds Carl, who panics, thinking that Jim wants revenge. He runs back to town, fulfilling the gang's plan for a reunion. The gang harasses Jim's family to ensure Jim's compliance in reenacting the murder. After the gang releases the family, Jim hides them inside a church, which the demonic gang cannot enter. Jim tries to bring his brother back in the church's graveyard as the gang lures his wife and son outside and hold them hostage. Jim finds that something is blocking Wayne's return and must cooperate with the thugs in reenacting the murder. It also reveals that when Jim was a boy, Jim took the murderer's car keys that led to their deaths. Jim recovered the keys. He returns to the train tunnel in which the first murder took place, though both he and Carl changed their dialogue and actions from those taken 27 years before. Frustrated, the gang leader stabs Carl, which allows Wayne to come back. Wayne distracts the gang while Jim finally gets the family out of the gang's car. Jim gave the gang back their car keys. The gang tries to escape in their car, only to have it struck by a ghost train that resembles much like the one that killed them years ago, which sends them back to Hell. Wayne offers to have Jim come with him to the afterlife, which Jim refuses. Wayne says that he can can move on to Heaven and see his parents because the Greasers are no longer a threat. Wayne goes back to the afterlife as Jim's family heads home. So review! And the intro comes up right away, and they make no mistake right away telling us that this movie isn't just Sometimes They Come Back, but it's Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back. By this point, it's 1991. King has long been established as not just an author, but a brand. So it makes sense to label this Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back, and I think it's a fun choice. I like when adaptations do this. It's a simple enough credit introduction. Just slightly creepy lettering against a black backdrop and quietly haunting music playing in the background. Then we get the one-two punch of Stephen Kingisms with not just a voiceover, but railroad tracks. So if it reminds you of Stand By Me, it should. Tim Matheson begins narrating for us, and it makes me wonder, why so many adaptations opt for this uh, character narration? Stand By Me, The Shawshank Redemption, this movie, Storm of the Century. Is it because it allows the Stephen King voice to enter into the story? Is it a way to slip in that Stephen King dialogue, create a sense of familiarity between the author and the writer, in this case the viewer and the filmmaker? Maybe it's because it allows for exposition, like we learn that Tim Matheson is returning to his hometown where his brother had died and where his parents had fled decades before. Anyway, we have Tim Matheson and with his wife and child traveling through your typical sleepy New England town in the fall. We have some lovely establishing shots of the setting and the van the family is driving pulls up to a dilapidated building they're going to be living in. If it's also ringing your pet cemetery bells, then you shouldn't be surprised. An unsuspecting family moving into a cursed town is one of the tropes that viewers became familiar with in that movie. Speaking of previous King movies, this marks Brooke Adams' second go-around in a King movie, the first, of course, being The Dead Zone. Now I'm just going to pretend that she's playing the same character. After Johnny's death, she divorced her husband and shacked up with Tim Matheson. Tim Matheson, by the way, I often confuse with Tim Hutton, who starred in The Dark Half and also played a teacher haunted by his past. And watching this movie, I see a little resemblance to the rumored could-have-been-Pennywise, soon-to-be-villain of Star Wars Rogue One, Ben Mendelsohn. Oh, and he went down to the barbershop and asked for the Stephen Webber. The haircut. Tim uh, Matheson, that is, not Hutton, introduces himself to a uh, knucklehead class of high school seniors who embody this... Just bizarre blend of like 50s and 90s aesthetic i mean seriously it just hurts the eyeballs we got our first conflict with pain in the ass chip who challenges tim matheson's authority here it's clear that he has taken the page out of another stephen king teacher jack torrance's playbook and he has some anger issues to deal with his classroom management skills are atrocious can't handle the class, and loses his shit in the first five minutes. So, when the principal wants to talk to him immediately after, I realize that I'll be rooting for the principal throughout this movie. We get a flashback, somehow more visually offensive than the student's style of dress, and we learn a little bit about the death of his brother so many years before. We get terrible children, play acting terribly, and the shot of a switchblade. Now, I don't mind the death by bully switchblade in the book, but somehow in the movie, it just seems unrealistic. But not as unrealistic as Tim Matheson making the moves on Brooke Adams after he tells her that he was just admonished by the principal for having anger issues in the classroom. And how is this being played sympathetically? And why is a lion roaring during the dream sequence when the bullies kill his brother? Is one of the bullies a furry? Do they have a pet leopard? Monster noises for the sake of monster noises do not make a scene scarier. And what the hell does a roaring lion have to do with greasers anyway? Jesus, I hate bad dream sequences. The dream sequences segue into a flashback? Brought about by his son's toy train? I don't know what's going on at this point, but Dutch tilts and slow-mo shots abound as young Tim Matheson and his doomed older brother head into the train track tunnel of death, whereupon an evil car full of eviler greasers chase them and hunt them down because they're sissies with books. The bullies' movements are accompanied by that roaring sound just to highlight their evilness. Or are they evil? These bullies are clearly middle-aged, so if they're trying to shake down the kids for money, they probably need a couple extra bucks to pay their mortgage feel kind of bad it's a hard world out there then a toy train smashes the toy greaser car killing the middle-aged bullies but seriously these guys look older than tim matheson in the present day scenes then hilariously brooke adams seeks out the source of a child crying only to discover her middle-aged husband so not only is he an unbalanced prone to anger educator but literally cries like a baby as well Our man-baby is then nearly run over by the villainous Chip, a name so over-the-top it's either intentionally awesome or unintentionally terrible, you decide, who bullies him for being flunked and therefore ineligible to play football. The only thing more over-the-top than Chip's antagonism is the follow-up conversation with Billy, his emotional, mulleted, earringed guitar-slinging, bicycle-riding student who all but looks at the camera and tells us he's going to die. Remember that scene in The Simpsons, I think I've talked about this before, where Homer's watching McBain, and McBain's partner tells him he's two ways away from retirement, his daughter is graduating from college, and he and his wife are going to sail around the world on a boat named Live Forever, seconds before he's gunned down by the bad guys? This is exactly, exactly the same scene that plays out here. Here is the actual dialogue from our molded, earringed, guitar-slinging Kansas fan. You know how you're always saying history repeats itself? I've been thinking a lot about that, and that really bothers me. Does it have to be the same story repeated over again? I mean, can't we change anything? I was listening to that Dust in the Wind song last night. I don't know. I just don't want to end up a piece of dust in someone's eye, you know? And the nail in the coffin comes from Tim Matheson, who replies, Well, I don't think that's who you'll be, Billy. I've never heard of a more damning death sentence than that. Tim Matheson then shares a laugh with our young friend who looks like he literally shits out his wallet before riding off on the final bike ride of his life. Go watch it. It goes flying out of his back pocket. He is then set upon by the greaser car from Matheson's youth, and as Billy tries to outrun it, he rides past what appears to be everyone in town who happens to be conveniently gathered on the side of the road while he shouts for help. He doesn't pull over by the way, he just pulls a Rickon Stark and rides in a straight line down the middle of the road. The townfolk look on, bewildered at the boy who's shouting for help, unable to see the flame-painted greaser-mobile, but can see Tim Matheson speeding down the road in his attempt to save the classic rock aficionado. By the way, the car he's driving couldn't look any goofier than it does. So to the witnesses, I'm telling you, it looks like Billy is fleeing for his life from the dog van from Dumb and Dumber. And then, with Billy out of the way, our greaser bully comes back from the dead to... Go back to high school? I mean, if you really think about it, that is what happens. And I get that it's a mind trip in the short story. It's like a bad dream. But here, it's just goofy. It's it's really goofy. Then the real hero of the story, Principal Simmons, walks into the classroom as Mr. Norman is berating his class and screaming at them to throw oranges at his face. Look, it's like the second day of school. I mean, at least it feels like it. Either way... You can fire this guy, Simmons. He doesn't have professional status. He broke a ruler, ran a kid off the road for all you know, and now he's provoking his students into throwing fruit at him. I understand that you need someone to teach the class, but at this point, Billy's dead body would do a better job than Jim Norman. Jim is so bad at his job that a kid throws an orange at him, but he's the one sent out of class. He then sulks by watching this 19... I'm sorry, he then sulks by watching the 1970s version of King Kong. I mean, Jesus, if you're gonna go bad, at least go big bad and pop in a copy of King Kong Lives. He has another dream of his brother's death, which is now accompanied by the sound of eagles screeching to go along with the lion roaring. Jim Norman should probably win some sort of award for worst day ever. His brother died, he lost his lucky rabbit's foot, and a car exploded as he ran out of a train tunnel. And then there's Brooke Adams, who, by the way, could have just as easily been played out, played by a cardboard cutout of Brooke Adams. And that's not a knock on Brooke Adams, by the way. It's just a condemnation on the lack of role she has to play with. And then, to pull another young couple having just moved into a bad location, the couple fights while the child eats cereal, reminiscent of that classic cereal plotline from Cujo. Oh my god. And then, for whatever reason, he still has a job and suddenly leaves the classroom to start a search party. Seriously, that is what happens. He fucking runs out of his classroom, still full of students during a test no less, thereby giving everyone an A, and the scene immediately cuts to a search party looking for a supposedly missing student. And it's night. I don't care about the missing girl right now. I'm more invested in what happens to the class after he ran out of the building like a madman. I would rather watch a movie from the perspective of one of the students. How much of a lunatic would he look like screaming at the rest of the class, being sent out by the principal, running out of the building like his shoes are on fire? And what are the other students? What would this student think of the gone too soon Billy with his wild mullet and dangling earring, or chipping his goons, or the undead greaser who can't stop chuckling? I mean, that's gotta be distracting after a while. I get he's an undead ghoul and all, but everyone's trying to take a test and he's just sitting there laughing maniacally. I mean, it would be more annoying than anything else. If this was going down in 2016, this guy's classroom would be ground zero for the best live tweeting experience. I mean, Jim is so bad at his job that his peers have every reason to believe that he's a danger to himself and his students. Oh my god! And going back to the live tweeting, another undead bully shows up and starts threatening Jim with a switchblade. And how is everyone acting like this is normal? Back at home, Norman answers, frantic knocking at his door, only to reveal a humbled chip He's all freaked out at the fact that he went drinking with some undead middle-aged men who are pretending to be high schoolers, and after warning Mr. Norman about them, he probably has the most metacognitive, self-reflective, insightful thought in the whole movie when he says that he can't help Mr. Norman because he is quote-unquote just a jock. It's that old Live Forever boat name again, as Chip is not only run over but plastered over the front of the uh, store brand Christine and driven throughout town while the ghouls cackle madly. Why do the zombies have to be so goddamn annoying? I mean, can we put, as a society, a moratorium on maniacal laughter? Now that they have Chip alone, we finally see the bullies as they actually are. Undead ghouls. Now their laughing cackling is actually pretty unnerving, combined with the sight of their slimy, grotesque, rotting skeletal faces. I do have to say I like the idea of them tooling around town in a car an evil car that shoots fire from its exhaust. It's an over-the-top detail that makes it fun enough to enjoy. Brooke Adams then confronts Tim Matheson over the accusations that he's murdered the kids. And if there's a teacher who is believed to have murdered children, A, he's not going to have a job to go to, and B, wouldn't be able to leave his house due to fear from what the townspeople would do to him. It's a pretty significant accusation with major ramifications, and the film breezily introduces the idea and does not follow up on it. The filmmakers decide to add yet another kingism to the proceedings, and that's the death of Gage Creed as the bullies attempted to run down Tim Matheson's son. Pushed to the edge, Matheson tracks down the only surviving member of the original bully gang, and as he's playing rough and tough vigilante, he's unfortunately left his house unprotected, leaving Brooke Adams alone. In the movie's smartest moment, Brooke Adams trusts her gut, and when she senses that something's wrong, she immediately grabs a knife. There's no tangible evidence that something's amiss or that anything is going to happen. She just senses it and acts on it. There's actually an effective bit of humor as she takes the knife, looks at it, puts it down. It's a beat designed to make the audience shout, No! And the actor knows this. So... When she, one second later, goes back to the knife block and pulls out a larger knife, it makes for a great fist-pumping moment. The gang rushes in, all various states of decay. It's not a particularly frightening scene. There's no way a ghoul can say, Hello, baby, without it being goofy. As they crowd around, Brooke Adams and son Matheson bursts in, fires off his gun, only to learn that bullets won't work against them. While she and the kid hole up in the church, Matheson wanders through graveyards and begs his dead brother to help him. A portal opens, but Wayne doesn't step through. Back at the church, the bullies learn that they can't step through and proceed to start breaking the stained glass while hooting and hollering. Tim Matheson then lures the gang back into the train tunnel, and history begins to repeat itself. An eagle screeches as the living bully is murdered, and then the wormhole opens, revealing Jim's dead brother who comes back for two things, to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And he's all out of bubble gum. The movie has turned into an after-school PSA how to stand up to bullies. The undead brother defiantly tells them to leave us alone, and then the brothers tag-team the bullies. A ghost, train, a ghost train from hell barrels down the tracks as Norton manages to save his family, dead brother included. The dead brother pleads to stay, <laughs> claiming that he was all alone in there, presenting a horrifying vision of the afterlife, and after using his dead brother for his own ends, Jim shunts him back into the lonely afterlife like an old toaster. And that is the end of that. So final thoughts. Um, When people say they like Stephen King movies but haven't read the books, I can't always help but grimace. The thing is, when it comes to the written word and a story, the experience will always be so much more fluid. It's elastic. Tones can bend and stretch and have variety that will always feel more natural in the written page unless you're an audiovisual master along the lines of a Quentin Tarantino who can instill multiple contradictory emotions within you at once. That's the thing with King. He can get away with a short story like Sometimes They Come Back because the concept is fun and schlocky. That's why it works as a short story. In my review of Thinner, I discussed how much the movie felt like an EC Comics work brought to life, but I don't know if that's always a good thing. At the beginning of this episode, I spoke of Stephen King as a brand, and it's because of movies like this that makes that brand so watered down, and it's movies like this that make me grimace when people say they've only seen Stephen King movies and not read them, because I can balance sometimes that comes back with the short story. I'm sorry. I can balance. Sometimes they come back. The short story with the stand with it. Duma Key, Dolores Claiborne, Under the Dome, 1122063. I mean, these works and so many others have moments of such extraordinary insight into life that constantly remind us why Stephen King is a brand in the first place. Movies like Sometimes They Come Back play upon the average non-book reading audience's perception of Stephen King, only that of a horror storyteller and not a very good one to boot. Or maybe I'm just being too harsh on this movie. I mean, it's not offensive. It's not atrocious. It's just... It's not really bad. It's just not very good either. I guess in the end, I shouldn't be too down on the movie. After all, it has the best title for a sequel with Sometimes They Come Back... Dot, dot, dot. Again. it Doesn't get much better than that. Okay, guys. Um so that was my long awaited review of sometimes they come back so what to look forward to for the rest of the summer like i said in the last episode i don't know if you're going to get another review during the summer um but some things to think about um i know that cell will be hitting a uh, video on demand in august so i would like to check that out and and pump out a review of cell and be on the forefront of the the reviews of that um so that could be fun um i don't know uh I uh, I've never actually seen the movie Sleepwalkers, so actually watching that might be fun. Um, I don't, and you know what? I don't want to spitball. I don't want to put any ideas and, and say I'm going to do something or think about doing something and then never do it. So, I mean, there will be a review of Cell. I, I can very, I can guarantee that. But anything else, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. But like I said in the last episode, for sure in October, um, you will get three weeks of reviews for Jonathan Madberry's Pine Deep Trilogy. So make sure that you keep your eyes open for that. And if you have not read Jonathan Madberry's Pine Deep Trilogy, please go out and order the following books. Um, Ghost Road Blues, Dead Man's Song, and Bad Moon Rising. You will not be disappointed. If you are listening to something called the Stephen King cast, trust me, you will not be disappointed at those three books. Um, Stephen King has never written um, his end-all-be-all story of Halloween, but thankfully Jonathan Maberry has done that for us. It feels very much a Stephen King collection of stories. Well, sorry, that makes it sound like it's a short story collection. It's not. <laughs> um, it's three novels, um, following the, uh, the lives of some characters of a small town in Pennsylvania, um, in, in October. And, uh, like, you will not be disappointed. And I really look forward to getting to those reviews. They're going to be a lot of fun. Okay, everyone. Um... So, if you have not done so, feel free to head on over to iTunes, leave a review, um, because the the more iTunes reviews there are, the um, the higher up in the iTunes library it gets, and the easier it is to, to find the Stephen King cast. So, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you next time where M O O N spells Stephen King cast. Dust in the wind, Oh, we are. No way hey.